This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times bestselling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I don't know about you, but it seems that every day I'm having a conversation about anxiety, and and I mean several times a day, both in terms of uh, friends and acquaintances who are who are really grappling hard with anxiety, especially it seems coming out of the past several years with everything that's been going on with COVID and uncertainty and all of it, and as people look to the the landscape around us. I mean, the the statistics that are coming out about uh, the rise of anxiety, particularly, but all sorts of uh, mental health uh, struggles with adolescents, particularly with teenage girls, not only are they really frightening, but it seems that no one knows what to do. That's why I'm really excited to talk today to my friend Curtis Chang about his new book called The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. Curtis Chang is a theologian and consulting faculty member at Duke Divinity School, senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He is the co-host of the Good Faith uh, podcast and... He and I and our friend, New York Times columnist David French, are launching a new project called The After Party about how Christians uh, can relate to politics going forward. And we'll talk about that uh, also today. Curtis, thanks for being on the show. Oh, Russell, it's a joy to be with you. And thanks for having me. You know, I was really struck in uh, reading your book about an incident that you had at the pumpkin patch uh, because (laughs) it was really relatable, uh, I think, to a lot of people, especially because the situation you were in was not particularly stress-inducing or dreadful. Uh, and yet you face this acute anxiety. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what happened that day and what you learned from it? Well, the context for that uh, anxiety attack at the pumpkin patch really explains what motivated me to write this book, which is what was happening in the middle of a catastrophic breakdown. I was having 
as the pastor of an evangelical covenant church. So this was uh, in my career as a, as a pastor, senior pastor of a church, first time being a pastor of the church, and it was becoming overwhelming, but, and I was filled with a great deal of anxiety, but I didn't know that, uh, and I didn't recognize it, and, and it's an important reason why I didn't recognize anxiety was I think something we'll talk about was because there's so much shame around anxiety Mm -hmm. and a distortion of how Christians are ought to understand anxiety that I thought I couldn't quite admit to my congregation to, and to myself that I was feeling anxious. So this anxiety was building all through my first year of being a senior pastor at the church. And when we do not recognize and acknowledge and also face anxiety in the way that God designed us, to face anxiety, then it just builds up mm-hmm. and it comes out in all sorts of unexpected ways. And the story that you're referring to is one such way in which anxiety comes out in these sort of panic attacks, which was, I was simply in a pumpkin patch taking my uh, young daughters to go through a pumpkin patch and it just suddenly became overwhelming. And I describe in the story what I could, dis- what was actually happening in my mind, but I couldn't narrate at the time. I was simply getting the classic symptoms of a, of a panic attack, uh, of shortness of breath, the world's closing in on me, a sense of dizziness. And um, that's what happens when anxiety builds up so much when we can't actually face it. It, it eventually, uh, as one author has recently said, the body keeps score. Mm-hmm. And so the, the anxiety does come out. And that was that was how it came out for me. And when it's the beginning of my breakdown as a pastor, which led me to realize I have been taught to approach anxiety in all the wrong ways. You say the word breakdown. How does one know if one is in a time of breakdown or if, if I, mean, I think there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out, I don't know. And one person said this to me not long ago. I, I'm afraid I don't know the difference between a nervous breakdown and what life is. So how does somebody know (laughs) if he or she is grappling with with just the normal uh, weight that that we all carry and something a lot more serious? I think that's a really important question because it's really critical to distinguish between anxiety and anxiety disorder. Mm. So an anxiety is a, what I argue in the book, is a natural human emotion. It is not a sin. It's not a character flaw. It is actually a natural human reaction we have to facing a potential loss we have in our life. And not only is it a sin, it's, it's actually part of the human experience. And we know it's part of the human experience because scripture actually describes Jesus as actually experiencing anxiety. Uh, all of the gospel passages talk about his sense of trouble, worry, sorrow, uh, especially in Gethsemane, but, um, uh, and John doesn't have that passage, but John 12 describes yeah. a similar experience of Jesus being troubled uh, about his future. So that's anxiety. Anxiety disorder is when we can't actually hold that experience, when we can't actually tolerate the experience of anxiety. And we're desperately actually trying to, to get away from that feeling of anxiety. And that's what causes this in my example, a panic attack. A panic attack is what happens when we are so unable to actually hold and endure the feelings of anxiety that our mind and our body are furiously trying to get away from actually what is unavoidable, Mm -hmm. which is anxiety. So an anxiety disorder is actually this irony where we cannot tolerate anxiety and therefore we get into all sorts of dysfunctional rumination, 
panic attacks at the extreme, but at the lower ends, rumination where our, our minds are simply circling around a situation over and over again, uh, or we're, we're engaging in uh, avoidance behaviors, uh, phobias, and so forth. Uh, so I think the key distinction is, are we able to actually hold the feelings of of anxiety, or are we furiously trying to get avoid and get away from it, and, and leading us into dysfunctional behavior? And, and don't you think that sometimes, sometimes you can have someone who doesn't even know that he or she is consciously grappling with whether anxiety or just an overload of stress? Oh, that's describes me, Russell, yeah. for most of my life. So I write about this in the book that. I actually, when I now look back, I was an anxious child. I grew mm -hmm. up as an anxious, but in our in our era, both especially, you know, back in the seventies, uh, um, and especially in the Chinese American immigrant culture, we just didn't have a label for it. We didn't have terminology and language to have to describe our experiences and admit uh, our experiences of anxiety. But I, I was actually a, I would say a chronically anxious child, but. I adopted uh, as a coping mechanism what's called highly functional anxiety. Mm. And what highly functional anxiety is, it's actually deep anxiety that is, is causing disorder deep down, but we've adapted all sorts of mechanisms to cope with it that actually to the world make it seem like we're pretty successful people. So for me as a child, I just learned you plan, you make contingency mm -hmm. um, uh, plans, you're always thinking ahead, you're always anticipating uh, it was all really actually fueled by anxiety, but to the rest of the world, it seems like I was just a really successful person. Yeah. Well, and even even sometimes to oneself. I, I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday in which I said, I don't think you know how much stress you're actually under. Uh, I, I think yeah. you're not consciously aware of it. And I was thinking about, I mean, you had the pumpkin patch. I had a Billy Graham crusade, uh, <laughs> which was in, uh, my wife and I were going through a really stressful adoption process. And uh, I was finishing my dissertation and I had just started as a faculty member um, uh, at a seminary and all of those things were happening together. And I was at a Billy Graham crusade and just suddenly thought I was having a heart attack. And because heart disease runs in my family, I was really worried about it and got to the hospital and they said, "Now nah, we think you're just really under a lot of stress and your body is letting you know that. But I wasn't, yeah. I wouldn't have consciously said I was worried or yeah. stressed out or anything like that. Well, I think that's why it's important to pay attention to various signals that are being sent. So the body certainly is one of them mm -hmm. when we are experiencing. For me, um, sleeplessness is, mm -hmm. is often the key warning sign for me uh, of anxiety. Uh, for others, it's you know shortness of breath, stomach disorders. It shows up in a variety of classic ways because the body is actually responding as if it's under threat. Yeah. Uh, that's what anxiety is. It's a fear of some threatened loss. And so our body is living in, as if that loss is actually happening. That's the nature of anxiety. But there are other signs as well. Relationships. Anxiety shows up in relationships as well uh, in some classic behaviors. And I write about this in my book such that other people sometimes are a better mirror onto your true self. Um, and, then, and then also our mental patterns, our internal mental patterns, things like when we find ourselves ruminating, going over a situation over and over, rehearsing a situation over and over again is another classic sign of actually deep internal anxiety. I think there's, there's an interesting question of, you know, you know, how do we recognize it better? 
I also think there's a really interesting question of why is it that we struggle to recognize anxiety? Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to the amount of denial, which acts underneath that denial is actually shame mm -hmm. that surrounds anxiety, that we do not want to admit to ourselves and to others that we're anxious. And that really gets to a core reason why I wrote the book is that uh, as Christians in particular, but I think this is actually true in the wider society, we've been taught to look at anxiety uh, incorrectly, that we've been taught to view it as a problem. Yeah. And really, there's two ways you can view it as a problem that you make it go away. Uh, and in the Christian world, we, we fall into both of these uh, different ways of looking at anxiety, which is we either view it as something that we're supposed to pray away, or we view it as something we're supposed to prescribe away. Mm -hmm. So in the pray away camp would be folks that believe anxiety is a sin. It's a lack of faith. It's a character flaw. And so you're supposed to pray anxiety away. And, and if you don't, uh, if you're, if you're suffering anxiety, it means you're not praying enough or you don't have enough faith. There's the other camp, which is still views anxiety as a problem, but it's a problem we outsource primarily to secular mental health to prescribe a way to prescribe either medication or therapy. Now I'm somebody that actually has benefited and believe in the value of uh, mental health, uh, you know, prescriptions, drugs properly prescribed and, and taken, and also therapy. I've, I've been through hours of therapy, but secular mental health still actually views, has its own version of viewing anxiety solely as a problem to go away. Rather than treating it as a sin, they treat it just as a disease. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I absolutely think that shame is is present for everyone. I think especially leader types, because our culture of leadership has to be this projection of utter confidence, utter certainty. I think it's true in the broader culture, mm -hmm. but I think it's especially true in the Christian subculture and, and certain sub subcultures where we prize leaders who project the sense of strength, certainty, uh, confidence. And then especially we, we lay on top of that this theological notion that anxiety is a sign of lack of faith. Well, then if you're a spiritual leader, then you're really facing a tough task of, of having to acknowledge and admit uh, that you're feeling anxious. And so, yeah, we're going to tend to hide that uh, both to ourselves and to others. And that's when anxiety really builds. A lot of people who are grappling with anxiety uh, feel a sense of shame because they look at Bible passages such as uh, Book of Philippians, in which the Apostle Paul says, be anxious for nothing. 
And uh, some of them will say, I'm in a state of disobedience because I'm anxious, but I don't know what to do about it because I continue to do what the Bible tells me to do, to take everything to God in prayer. And yet I still am anxious. You argue in the book that part of the problem is that we're misinterpreting that biblical command. What, what do you yes. mean So absolutely. It's Philippians 4, 6 is what I call the clobber verse. It's the verse that is taken out of, I believe, out of context and simply used as a verse to clobber people who are feeling anxious to say, you shouldn't feel anxious. It's a sin. And um, so I won't go into the full exegesis. There's a whole, you know, sort of chapter I write about that. But if you're wondering why I believe that uh, Philippians 4, 6 is misread, you know, just read Philippians 2.28, which Paul says, I'm feeling really anxious. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm feeling anxious about sending Epaphroditus to you. So it would be odd if Paul meant Philippians 4.6 to say, anxiety is a sin, having just a few paragraphs earlier said, I'm feeling really anxious and confessing that with complete openness and no sense of shame attached to that. And so Philippians 4.6 has to be really understood as a pastoral encouragement for, hey, of course, he's encouraging us to not be anxious, but that does not, every pastoral encouragement does not mean that the underlying behavior is actually a sin. Uh, And more important than thinking about anxiety as a sin is talking about Paul is trying to shift our perspective to indeed turn to Jesus. And so the real question is, let's look at Jesus and how does Jesus teach us to deal with anxiety versus just assuming it's something we're supposed to make go away. And it starts with, I think, a profound realization that Jesus himself modeled what it's like to go through anxiety in his most definitive uh, sort of life act of going to the cross was an anxiety uh, filled experience. And so he's shown us the way to go through anxiety. And that's that's the point here of the book is anxiety is not something that we have to make go away either as a sin or as something that we're just to prescribe away. Uh, it is something we go through and by going through anxiety, by actually learning how to endure the experience, the underlying reality of, of anxiety, we actually uncover some of the most important opportunities for spiritual growth. My favorite part of your book, I think, was the section in which you talked about the way that Jesus related to people who were undergoing uh, anxiety. And you very helpfully lay out all of these different kinds of anxiety and all of these different sorts of responses to anxiety, but the way that Jesus approached them. And I I think that's really key because I think a lot of people, when they're grappling with anxiety and they think, Uh, I'm letting Jesus down. And so I've got to go to him for help, but he's really disappointed in me for being (laughs) anxious. That that becomes a really difficult thing to do. So what, what can we learn from those accounts of Jesus with anxious folks? There's so many things to learn. So first of all, it's just to learn that how normal and expected it is that anxiety is the meeting place of Jesus. It's the doorway that we actually meet Jesus. Anxiety is normal in scripture. It is the normal way in which people approach anxiety and Jesus welcomes them, welcomes them all. Not with a finger wagging, you know, you're in sin, but rather as if this is, of course, is the way that we we approach Jesus. So Mark is filled with such stories. And then I go into some details of examples 
like the leper who is a you know deeply anxious person and how Jesus welcomes this this leper by touching him mm. by by touch and this is something that i think is really important for people who are struggling with anxiety is the power of touch mm. the power of physical experience uh, that I think God wants us to take us through in in, in, in how He wants to to kind of encounter us uh, through touch. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's there's so many uh, examples, stories of how Jesus is saying to us through Scripture, "Yeah, come to me in your anxiety. Don't don't. It's not like you have to push it away, get rid of it first, and then you're able to be able to warrant and merit my attention. It's precisely in our anxiety we approach Him." You know, you mentioned this uh, idea of of medicalizing it all away, and uh, I would agree with you that um, uh, that medical interventions are a good gift from God. And people yeah. who are uh, who are grappling with whether anxiety or depression or something else being treated medically uh, is really good, and and often yeah. being treated pharmaceutically is really good. We also have at the same time a problem of, I think of say uh, Jordan Peterson, who uh, ended up in a, I think it was a month long sort of um, uh, almost a coma uh, because of an addiction to Xanax or some other some other mm-hmm. uh, anxiety medication. Do you see that kind of um, that kind of problem with with a, a an attempt to escape from the anxiety, but that just piles on a, a different kind of it? Well, this gets to I think the fundamental misunderstanding of anxiety that is true both in the Christian circles, but in secular mental health as as well. That we are confusing anxiety and anxiety disorder, and we're pathologizing all experiences of anxiety, such that if you're feeling anxious, it means something's wrong, and we have to get rid of it. We either have to pray more or prescribe more to get rid of it. And the reality is, anxiety, and this is being increasingly recognized by secular mental health professionals that I write about in the book is that we've made a mistake in that regard because anxiety is the normal human reaction to loss. Mm. That's what anxiety is. It's the normal human physical, bodily, emotional reaction to the prospect of loss. So because anxiety equals loss, if you pathologize all anxiety and you say, it's, it means there's something wrong with you if you are experiencing anxiety, you are essentially saying there's something wrong with you if you are experiencing loss. That, that's really what you're saying when you say anxiety itself is a problem because anxiety equals loss. And that's, that's a recipe for disaster in your life because life is filled with loss, including for Christians. Mm-hmm. And so if we think we have Leonard, to- Leonard, Leonard Cohen uh, singing, uh, I've seen the future, brother, it's murder. <laughs> we, 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 we don't know for a reason what's around the corner for any of us. Absolutely. Well, we and well, actually, of course, the irony is we actually do know what's around the corner ultimately, yeah, that's right. which is death. We yeah. are all going to die, which means we all are going to face the loss of all losses, the loss of everything. So when we adopt a posture that we have to avoid loss because that's because we feel anxious when we feel loss. That means we're trying to avoid the unavoidable. We are trying to avoid the unavoidable when we try, when we say we cannot experience anxiety. And that is actually what leads to anxiety disorders. That's what multiplies what we would call natural, normal, normal human anxiety into anxiety disorders because 
it's like getting on the hamster wheel. We're, we're trying to get away from something we cannot get away from. Um, and that's what leads into either over-reliance on medication on the one end or all sorts of other rumination, which is just when you're turning a situation over and over again, thinking if I just think long and hard enough about it, I will discover this one way about thinking about it that makes the loss go away. But it it never happens. We can't discover that one perspective that like makes loss disappear. And so we're caught in an addiction to rumination, to thought. And that's that's what happens when we're trying to avoid the unavoidable. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to show people, no, we actually, what the, the opportunity that anxiety invites us is to rather than try to run away from loss, to try to make it go away and try to recruit God as a means for us to, to escape all loss, it's actually a way, an invitation for us to go through loss, to endure loss, which is the Jesus way. It is the path of the cross. It is to go through loss, to go through death. And on the other side of it, we have the promise of resurrection and restoration. But, but we don't get there unless we go through loss. Resurrection is the restoration of what we have lost. It's not avoiding loss. And that is, I think, a fundamental posture that Christians are tempted to go into is to actually, rather than go through loss in the hope of restoration, is we just want to avoid loss, period. And that's what leads us into anxiety disorders. When Jesus is teaching, uh, take no thought of tomorrow and uh, the, the, the classic uh, verse that I can't help but think of in the old King James Version, because that's the way I memorized it as a kid. And it's just <laughs> awesome. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's a pretty that's, that's awesome some good way, That's some good old English. Yes, right it is. <laughs> I'll often talk to people who will say, I'm anxious and I have no reason to be. It's such a it's such a lack of gratitude because I look around and I have a job that I like and I have a family that I love and my my circumstances are really good and maybe even better than they've ever been. And somebody says, "So why am I anxious?" It, it, it would seem it it might be because of that. You you do have some things that you love so much and you're afraid of losing them. Hundred percent. I mean, th- that is exactly right. And by the way, this is exactly why we can't avoid anxiety entirely. Is because if you love, if you love people, if you love the nature, if you love the world, it means you have things that you will lose in this mm. world. Uh, right? I, I love my kids. At some point, I'm going to lose my kids. That, that's that. I will. They'll move away, and then eventually, I will die. They, or, or God forbid, they die first. So I'm not crazy when I'm afraid of loss because I'm actually being human because I love as a human being. And to love then is to be expose yourself to loss, Mm -hmm. to loss of valued treasured things. And this is why you can't get away from anxiety entirely. Now the problem, and Jesus talks about this precisely in the verse you mentioned, is when we live in the future mm-hmm. and are hijacked into the future, right? So that's what anxiety is. is It's when we've been, we are taken away from the present and actually loving and enjoying what is present around us. And we're taken into this future land, this future scenario, which is dark and scary, where anxiety then can actually uh, taunt us with all the prospect of loss. And which is actually probably, I mean, is actually inevitably going to be there, but we're not called to live there. We're not called to live in the future. Mm -hmm. And what anxiety is, is when we're living in the future, we're rehearsing all these scenarios that are not happening around us, they're happening in the future. And in fact, I invite listeners right now just to do this very simple exercise. 
Like just think about something that you know you're feeling anxious about. And, and if, see if you can identify first, what is the loss that's underneath that anxiety? You know, is it the loss of a relationship? For a lot of people, it's the loss of self, self-image, mm-hmm. some, some image of oneself as sufficient, as put together, as competent, as light or something. And then once you've identified that loss, really try to drill down and determine what time frame is this feared loss taking place. Mm. In every case, if you're feeling anxious, that is not happening right around you. It's about some loss you fear is happening in the future. And so this is why one of the immediate responses that Jesus has and is one of the opportunities anxiety presents us is Jesus in that Sermon on the Mount is saying, don't, don't get hijacked into the future. Come back to the present with me because the present is really where we are called to live with God, with each other, and with the world. And one of the great immediate defenses against anxiety is simply practices that, that are actually found in scripture, but also found in mental health practices that just resist this hijack to the future and call us to be present to the now. There's a songwriter I love, Jay Lind, who has a song called This Too, where he takes uh, takes an old uh, fable about a king who wanted a ring that he could look at in both times, good and bad. And so they constructed a ring that just has on it the words, uh, this too shall pass. And so he, he could look at it when he has the adulation of all of the crowds mm. shouting, oh, king, look, live forever. This too shall pass. And also as he's dying uh, in his deathbed, he can look look down, this too shall pass, that there's, there's yeah. a power in being in the present and, and, and recognizing that, um, that when Jesus is talking about, look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, not as a kind of, oh, everything will be fine, but yeah. there's somebody who actually does care for me. I'm, you're worth yeah. many sparrows and that, uh, and that I can have confidence in a in an uncertain future, I don't have to live there right. because God is; He's already there. Well, and the shift that Jesus is doing in that passage is shifting people from a preoccupation. Not only there's two shifts He's making there: one from the future to the present. He's calling you back to the present, but He's also calling us to shift from a preoccupation of a loss of things mm-hmm. in the future to actually being present in the present with a person, with the Father, God. It's a shift from the what to the who. And that's the whole sort of structure of that passage on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, you know, don't be afraid of what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink, but instead know that you have a Father who loves you, right? And notice there's not the promise made of, the promise is not, and I'm going to tell you exactly and precisely all the things you Mm -hmm. will have in the future. I'm not giving you the inventory of your wine cellar or the precise, you know, contents of your wardrobe for the future. The promise is a who Mm -hmm. of a father who is present with you in the present now. And that is one of the most important opportunities we have in anxiety is to say, is to recognize, wait, I'm getting hijacked into the future about the loss of things The invitation is to go through anxiety being in the present with a who. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, 
a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. That was such a powerful part of your book. It, when you you talk about the distinction between the blueprint and the architect, that what, yeah. what God's trying to bring us to is not a blueprint for getting around anxiety, but to, yeah. to actually connect us personally to Jesus in it. I mean, that, that yeah. really reframes the way we see things. It is. And it, it, it confronts one of the, I think, hidden, sometimes unconscious, sometimes conscious mistakes that Christians, including Christian preachers, make about what is the promise of God. Mm-hmm. That there is a strong, and especially this isn't true in certain traditions of like prosperity gospel that are affected by the prosperity gospel, that actually what I would call that God is like this cosmic insurance broker in the sky, that, that God exists to insure us against all loss. And that's just not promised in scripture. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. Jesus spends much more of his time preparing his disciples for what they might, and not only might, but they will lose in the future. That's what it means to take up your cross. And so we, we have this, when we have been taught that God exists mistakenly to just insure us against all loss, that's when we get into all sorts of horrible uh, cycles where we're praying furiously like God that and trying to almost engage in superstition to press the right buttons to make God come through on insuring us from loss and giving us that blueprint of the future that is going to not have us losing anything. Uh, and so that's a futile pursuit because God never promised us that. But if we keep trying to do that, we actually set us up for more anxiety, including spiritual anxiety, because then this all of that expectation backs up on us. Then we start wondering, maybe the problem is with me. Maybe I'm not praying the right way. Yeah. Maybe I don't have enough faith and so forth. And, and that actually multiplies our anxiety. I laughed at a part in this book because you and I ended up and I completely accidentally bumbling into it. And, and you probably very thoughtfully and, and strategically <laughs> ended up here. But I found uh, I was coming out of, as you know, an environment that was really toxic yeah. <laughs> and yeah. in, a, in a Christian space and where I kind of always had to have the adrenaline up because I never knew what was going to happen next. And <laughs> it took me a long time to start noticing that I would, I would kind of be on guard for that kind of thing when it wasn't there. And what was helpful for me is just to say to myself, notice you're on guard and you're not at a 
Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee <laughs> meeting. You're, you're not there. You're, you're somewhere yeah. else in a completely different environment. I realized that it was incredibly helpful for me to name my anxiety because what, and and because I think God has designed us to exercise our God-given powers through naming. It's the first human activity that God commands us to do is to name the world around us. And that includes naming not just, you know, the beasts that roam in the in Eden, but includes naming the beasts that roam in our minds mm. as well. And when we name something, we are saying Two, there's two things we're doing. We are differentiating. But when we name something, we're like, oh, that's this. That's not me. And so much of the trap of anxiety is that when we fuse ourselves with our anxious thoughts or our anxious reactions. And so when we name, we're like, oh, that's not me. I, that doesn't have, that's, that's a thought that I have, but I am not to be conflated with my thoughts. And so we're able to then to actually um, differentiate from our anxious thoughts, and we're actually able to exercise some authority because naming is an act of authority in, in scripture. Like when we name something, we're saying, like when Jesus names Peter, he's exercising, I know you, I, I know who, what you really are. I have authority over you. And so when we can learn to name our, our, our anxious thoughts, we're exercising, we're differentiating from our thoughts. We're saying, you know, that's not me. I may be thinking these things, but it's not me. And I have some authority, some control, mm -hmm. albeit shakily exercised often, but I have some ability to do it. And so the, what I did was I imagined my anxious thoughts as a radio station, like you said, which then enabled me to, oh, that's playing what I called K-fear, uh, mm -hmm. that, that station. It enabled me to both differentiate it and also like recognize it like, oh, this is the pattern. These are the thoughts. And then I could uh, begin to uh, exercise with God's help some authority over it. I could change to the channels sometimes, or if I couldn't change the channels, if I was just trapped in, in rumination in this, this channel playing over again, I at least could learn to like, I'm going to see if I can turn down the volume on, mm -hmm. on that. So I know it's still there, but it's, it's in the background. Um, and there's all sorts of ways that I, I described in the book that naming uh, enables us to exercise this God-given differentiation and authority. The same thing with prayer. I, I, I had a conversation not long ago where I said, look, this is what I've learned. So someone came up and said, I don't know. Uh, my prayer life is terrible because I feel numb. I feel dead. I feel bored when I think about praying. I just want to watch Netflix or something. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't want to pray and I don't want to be like this. I don't want to get out of it. And I said, why don't you do this? Say, God, I don't want to pray. I feel numb. I feel dead. And all I want to do is watch Netflix. And here's kind of, uh, here's kind of what I want to watch. And guess what? You just prayed. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And what you did and, and identify that and bring it to bring it to God. There is just a lot of power in that. Totally. And it's hard to, it, it's hard sometimes to do at the beginning. Uh, yeah. But once you learn how to do it, it really does help. Now, one thing that you talk about that might be controversial for some people yeah. uh, because there are a lot of people who will look at, they're very, a lot of Christians who are very nervous about things like uh, yoga or uh, what what uh, one person called mindfulness, which is kind of an <laughs> appropriation of Buddhism uh, yeah. here. You know, those sorts of things. They're nervous about those things. And you talk about breathing Yep. Uh, exercises. And there are some Christians that might say, wait, 
are we supposed to do that? Is that some sort of a new agey uh, religious thing that I'm yeah. doing? They might find that that nerve wracking. What would you say to them? Well, I invite them to read the book because this is where I exegete uh, the origins, I think, of the, of the Christ-centered practice of mindful breath. And it gets to Jesus' uh, bequeathing of his very presence to his disciples after his resurrection, which is described as he breathed on them. And I think that is a very conscious, mindful act of Jesus, which is equating the presence of his very spirit with breathing. And it's a beautiful expression, embodiment of Jesus' presence with us because it, when we, we're always breathing, which is meant to convey Jesus' spirit is always with them. It's, 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 this, it's calling back, in fact, to Genesis, the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God is described as the spirit, is equated to the spirit. So breathing is meant for us to remind us, oh yeah, as I breathe, I am present with the Holy Spirit because that's how Jesus breathed on his disciples to convey his ever-present presence. And so I think there's, there's a, that's a rich uh, narrative for us to anchor the presence of mindful breathing. Um, and so I, I'm trying to argue that actually the origins of mindful breathing are found in Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit. And if you want to go back to Genesis 1, the Spirit of God breathing over all of creation. And so when we're practicing mindful breath, we're simply reminding ourselves in a bodily fashion, yes, the Spirit of Jesus who breathes in us is present with us everywhere. The stats on mental health for adolescents, they're, they're overwhelming uh, right now. And, and the data keep uh, keep showing us this. I mean, so it's not just yeah. one data point that's coming in. Uh, everything is showing us this uh, crisis. Uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, argues that this has to an exponentially great degree, it has to do with the onset of the social media uh, age. Do you agree with no. that? Do you think that that's that, that, that when you when you look at the huge spike in yeah. teen anxiety, and then we have a lot of college students who listen to to this show and who will often say, I, "I'm not only kind of trying to deal with my own anxiety, but I'm in a very anxious setting." around other people and I don't know how it got to be this way. Do you do you yeah. think that social media is is part of this? And if so, what do you do because Yeah, absolutely. I would say social media, yeah, social media plus smartphones especially, right? Yeah. Because what yeah. happens is uh, there's a, several things going on. And I just had, was on, had on my own uh, podcast, Gene Twenge, who oh, along yeah. with Jonathan mm -hmm. Hyde are really leading kind of the research showing that it's smartphones are the huge factor for driving up teen anxiety. Um, so I won't go into all the data, but I, I think it's helpful for people to recognize all the different ways in which smartphone usages exacerbates anxiety because it, it exactly, it hijacks us away from the present, from, from the world, from creation, from nature, and takes us into all sorts of scenarios that, that social media tees up for us of loss, loss mm. in the world, loss of what you're missing out on because you're seeing images of your friends gathered together that you're not a part of, uh, loss of your own self uh, image because you don't look like all these images that are being portrayed as now. There's all sorts of loss. Mm -hmm. Like social media is a loss generating machine. Mm -hmm. And so because we're constantly bombarded with things that we do not have, that we are losing or fear losing, it's a recipe for anxiety. 
And it's also taking us away from the things that are designed for us to be present, uh, present with each other, present to nature. We're staring at screens. We're not with other people. We're not touching. We're not physically present with other people. All of these things that I argue in the book are God's design for us as human beings to, to respond to anxiety with. So I absolutely think that's present. That's true with the fact that, you know, three in five teenage girls are suffering from profound anxiety and depression. One in three, according to the CDC, has considered suicide at some point in this past year. I mean, that, it is a pandemic. You're absolutely right. Which we absolutely need to talk about ways that we can help teens. For every one of those teen girls, there's a parent yeah. behind that teen girl uh, or teen boy. And that parent is dealing with anxiety, both the anxiety in their child, but of course, also the anxiety themselves, that the anxiety in our children triggers our own anxiety. And then so a lot of what I'm writing in the book is trying to help parents deal with process and actually enter their own parental anxiety as an opportunity for their own spiritual growth. Mm. And there was, there was this article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about uh, what used to be called the sandwich generation, people who have both kids at home and aging parents that they're dealing yeah. with, that with the delays in childbearing and those sorts of things mean is a real uh, crisis at the same time having those things. And the article says, not a sandwich generation, it's a, it's a panini uh, generation <laughs> because the pressure uh, that's coming. And so yeah. often... Often, really, no matter where you are in the life cycle, it's not just dealing with your own anxiety. It's exactly what you're talking about. There are people you care about that yeah. you really can't, you know, you can help them in some ways, but you can't take them out of uh, what yeah. it is that they're experiencing. That can be really, really hard pressure. It's hard pressure. It's also an invitation mm -hmm. because in this Panini generation, what those of us that sandwiched in the middle are dealing with is the fear of loss. Mm -hmm. Like, what am I, I going to lose my child, either in some you know horrible thing or just the loss of their well-being? And then, especially when we look to our parents, we are dealing with the loss of them, th their lives, their impending death. That's really what is happening. Or, right? or guilt. I mean, the, you, you have uh, one person oh, yeah. said to me, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm trying to deal with all of this. And I feel like that old song, Cats in the Cradle, except it's going in two directions. I'm, I'm trying, or at least two directions. I'm trying to work and I'm afraid that I'm not spending the time I need to with my children. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm not spending the time I need to and what I need to be doing for maybe an aging parent who's starting to, who's starting to have yeah. health issues. And it just becomes guilt on top of, on top of anxiety yeah. as well. I think that's right. And, and, and teasing out all of that. Again, I think this is why we need to look at our anxiety because our anxiety is telling us something. Because if that anxiety is fused with guilt, that's an opportunity for us to actually deal with that guilt, which may mean changing what we're doing if that's if that's or it may mean no i actually need to receive the grace of god mm -hmm. in this uh, but either way uh, there's some there's some message in our anxiety how do, you, how do you know the difference between whether whether i need to change some things or i need to receive the grace of god here 
I think one of the the real invitations, but also challenges of anxiety is is actually listening for the voice of Jesus in in our anxiety. And so I talk about this that one of the things we we learn have to learn to do is try to learn learn to pay attention not to anxiety, but to Jesus and to distinguish those two voices in us or the voice of guilt and so forth. And this is really why, uh, you know, this is not fashionable, Russell, I know, but why we have to keep calling our people to read the gospels Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we have to call people because what we're doing when we read the gospels is we're developing familiarity with the voice of Jesus. And as we develop familiar with the voice of Jesus, then we can actually and and then we, then when we tune into our anxiety, when we tune into our K fear or whatever we want to name our anxiety, we can we can actually differentiate. Like, wait a minute, that voice, that voice of guilt, of anxious, guilt-ridden torment, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound theologically like Jesus. It, the tone doesn't sound like Jesus because Jesus, when I read in the Gospels, is one who is welcoming anxious people, not condemning or chastising or shaming anxious people. Right. So there's as we're doing this process of naming our anxiety, we have to also do a parallel process of really listening and developing our, our, our familiarity, our audio familiarity, our spiritual audio familiarity with the voice of Jesus. So we can make these important distinctions and say, oh, that's actually anxiety speaking versus that's actually Jesus speaking. Well, we've been doing a lot of uh, filming and a lot of other work, you and I (laughs) and David have. One of the things that makes me anxious is not being liked and being, uh, it's sometimes uh, sort of the hostility that comes. It really does. It really does bother me. But when we're doing uh, anything together, I always am able to say, well, at least in this room, I am not the most hated person here because David French is here <laughs> and he's thinking the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm just trying to hide between you two. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my approach on this is why I wanted David and Russell to join me in this after party project is the classic, you know, I just need to run faster than the next guy from the bear, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. But we, we, we've been working on this project uh, previously uh, called the Postpartisan Church and Nancy French, who's working with us mm-hmm. on this very brilliantly. I think it was her idea to change it to yeah, the it after party. Why don't you tell yeah. folks about what, uh, what, we're, what we're working on here? Yeah. So the, the after party is a project between Russell and David that we are trying to, and it's called the after party towards a better Christian politics where we are trying to call Christians to our higher allegiance to Jesus, uh, which transcends uh, our partisan loyalty. So the project is going to be producing a series of videos that tries to articulate what this Christian political identity rooted in Jesus that is not rooted in red or blue. Um, and we're going to do it the, the, for those listeners who are in the church world. My shorthand for this is what Alpha did for evangelism the after party wants to do for politics, right? We want to create a ready set curriculum, a set of videos that small groups in churches can go through to actually reframe their Christian political identity. And it's actually related to to this question, this this project on anxiety as well, because Mm -hmm. I don't, I think we have to recognize that so much of our partisan um, identities are actually being fueled by anxiety. We have two parties both parties that are basically seizing on different anxieties that are out there and promising that, you know, their party is going to be the party that uh, guarantees you uh, loss avoidance. 
And instead, what we want to call people to is, look, no human political party is going to save you from all of your feared losses. We have a different uh, promise made in Jesus, which is the after party, which is a political identity that ultimately rooted that, that our answer to our fears of loss are found in the big after party, the mm-hmm. restoration of all things. When Jesus returns, it's the wedding feast of the lamb. It's the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. And that is not only the answer to all of our political fears, Russell, it's actually the fear answer to all of our anxieties. Because what I'm trying to say in the book is, ultimately the, the, the Jesus-centered answer to anxiety is to go through our loss with the hope in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're going to avoid all loss. It's that all of what we lose will be returned to us in a glorified, redeemed, restored state. So both in our human, in our jobs, in our economics, in our finances, and in our politics, that's really the promise. That's the promise of the gospel. It is this after party that we are called to look forward to. That's the future if we're supposed to actually look forward to, not this scary future of loss. Well, we, uh, we are having a good time with this and can't wait for you to see it and participate in it uh, later on. The book is The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self by Curtis Chang. Pick up the book and read it, not only for yourself, but for somebody who's somebody who needs you to encourage them along. Curtis, thanks for being with us today. It's been a, a really fun time, Russell. Thanks for having me. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.